It's really good to be back. If you can open your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 through 4 is what our text will be. Uh, yes, my, for those who don't know, I know many of you know us very dearly, uh, but those who don't, my name is Brian, my wife's Mandy, we have three girls, Lydia, Molly, and Isabella, who was just born. We live in South Asia. Uh, we have been members of this church for now going on about 10 years. So it's truly great to be a family and be a part to bring God's word here. Um, so let's uh, turn our attention to the word, as even Paul just said, to the word of life. This is God's word for his people. Let us hear Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 through 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now let us pray. Our great Lord and God, as we continue to turn our hearts, may we turn our hearts to your words. May our ears hear, may our hearts change, and, and our mouths begin, begin to sing, and our lives begin to change because of your word and how you change us. Lord, be with me as I preach. May I be a king to these people leading them. May I be a prophet speaking your words. May I be a priest leading them to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 1730s, through Jonathan Edwards' weighty-filled preaching, groups of students gathered together to study God's Word and pray. In 1797, a group of 25 students on the campus of Yale founded a society to pursue holiness and pray. In that same year, on the Bluegrass Hills, of Kentucky in Logan County, a pastor named James McGrady asked his congregation to pray for revival. In the 1850s, from the streets of New York, 200 businessmen entered North Dutch's church, third floor classroom, to pray during their lunchtime. Across the pond, the Methodist preacher Humphrey Jones packed his church out every morning at 5 a.m. for what? Prayer meetings. In the penitent lands of India, one Pandita Rambina, a woman of courage, gathered 550 ladies twice a day to pray for revival. Now, what do all these groups have in common? They all are at the fountainhead of great revivals in church history. I could give you many more. We see prayer was at the beginning. Prayer is central to all revivals, renewals, conversions, whether that being individual for a church, for a nation, or to the nations. Prayer is at the center. So as we move Today, in our passage, the big truth, 
uh, from our passage today is God uses prayer to open doors for the gospel to go out to the nations. I'll read that again. The big truth is that God uses prayer to open doors for the gospel to go out to the nations. Let's see this in our text. The first truth we see in our text is a call to a kind of prayer. We see this in verse 2. Let's read it together. Verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. There are many kinds of prayers in the Bible. We have thanksgiving, laments. There are also daily prayers, and there are prayers for special occasions. The kind of prayer that Paul is calling believers here is a wartime, kingdom-minded prayer. Paul is exhorting believers here more than just to pray for domestic needs. He's reminding them of the war around them and their need to communicate with their commander-in-chief, King Jesus. I want you to imagine yourself on a battlefield. You're in the trench. Your armor is on. Your weapon is in hand. Out on the plains, you have the enemy troops rolling in on their tanks and marching toward you. You're in great danger. Danger is lurking. And you have a walkie-talkie. And you call. You call out for rescue. Now, what do you want in those, that moment? You want two things. The first thing you want is you want to stay in constant communication with headquarters. And the second thing is you want to watch out for the enemy, and more importantly, the airstrike which is to come. And I think we see these both in our passage today. First, we say, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Believers are to be in constant, committed communication with King Jesus. Jesus has already made the decisive blow on the cross. You remember his words on the cross, it is finished. That mission that was given to him before he came into the world to gather all those who he would call and he would die for, he made that decisive blow on that cross. He made the sights of victory. And now he is, at this moment, reconquering the lands which are already rightfully his. And so we are on that battlefield, that spiritual battlefield, and we need to get our orders from him. I was reminded of this, uh, this need for constant contact just recently. I guess now it's uh, a couple um, weeks or months ago. I don't know, we're almost finished with a series, uh, TV drama 24. You know, you probably watch it. Uh, Jack Bauer was once again um, uh, saving the U.S. president. And then this particular episode, maybe episode three or four, Jack goes into the U.S. embassy to receive intel to, uh, about the attack. But the only way he can do it is with his faithful friend, Chloe who was what, on the outside, and he was monitoring Jack 
for the threat that was about to attack him and tell Jack where to go to get the intel he needed to go. He, they, he and Chloe needed to stay in constant communication to get the intel to complete the mission. Well, in a similar way, Paul is instructing believers to be in constant contact with the Lord of the harvest to complete the mission. From where to go, to the threats of the enemy, to the direction and the mission of the operation, we are always needed to be guided by King Jesus. So be in constant communication. Paul continues to say, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. The language he uses draws our minds back to Jesus' remarks to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember the story. This is Jesus' last day before he goes to the cross and uh, he goes out to a very special place, a, pray, a place that he probably played very often. And he takes even his three closest disciples, and then he goes out and he prays. And it's a very intense time of prayer. There's a spiritual battle going on. And what do the disciples do? Well, they, what, they fall asleep, often what we do. Mm-hmm. But, they, but Jesus comes up, and, he, and the second time he says this to them, after he wakes him up, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So you have watch there. You have prayer in a distressful situation where there's a war, a spiritual war going on. The apostle Peter also warns Christians to be sober-minded Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We believers must watch out. Stay awake. Be alert for the enemy's attack as we move forward on this mission. See, Paul here, he's using these terms to remind believers of the reality which we live in is not a time of peace, but a time of peace. War. War against the rulers and authorities of the enemy's army. We must understand that life is war to pray properly. When we understand life is war, we see the urgency of prayer. We also pray effectively. Dr. John Piper reminds us of this when he writes, quote, God has given us prayer as a wartime walkie-talkie so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. Prayer gives us the significance of frontline forces and gives God the glory of a limitless provider. End quote. Over the past year, I have learned this truth more than I ever have. Living in South Asia, listening to the Muslim call of prayer every morning, smelling the incense offered up to idols in our building, watching families be enslaved to statues reminds me every morning of the war and the darkness that we live in. And I have seen the war in my heart, my heart that has sin that still seeks to reign with pride 
and self-seeking. There is an ever greater need for believers to see a war around them as well as in them today and to focus our attention to kingdom-minded wartime prayers to ask the Holy Spirit to come and to do a great battle. And Paul also adds, and this is not something that's very, we can't pass over this. He says, adds with thanksgiving. Why thanksgiving? Well, are we not thankful that we get to speak to our God and he listens, that our God listens? And we're thankful when rescue comes. We're thankful that God spares our life and spares your life. And so, as we seek our need for the kind of prayer, a wartime prayer, we also see that God uses it to do something. And that is our second truth. Our second truth is we see in our text is that God uses prayer to open doors. Let's read with me in verse 3. Verse 3. At the same time, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word. The Word. There are many doors in this world. A door in your house. There's a door in your car. There's a door in your office. There's lots of doors in the back here in the church, all around the side. Doors in the church. And there are other kinds of doors Doors on hearts, doors on countries, doors on nations, doors on people groups. And many of those doors are closed. They're closed. And so Paul is saying here, he's looking out from his prison and he's seeing, he's seeing, I see a lot of closed doors in front of me. Would you pray? Would you pray with me? that God would open a door? Paul believes the only way that a closed door can be opened is if God opens it. And so, let's ask Him. Let's ask Him, along with me, Paul says, to open the door. Paul knows, my friends, right now, that God is still opening doors. Now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. There will be a time when night will come and God will no longer open doors. And then judgment will come. But now is not that time. God is still opening doors. The door of any heart, your heart, on nations, on people groups, it might be closed and maybe even locked, but if God wills, He can open it. This is an amazing passage of opportunity. The opportunity is for the gospel to be known. If a person has breath, if a nation still runs, if a people group still exists, there's still hope. There is still hope, an opportunity of salvation. A door can be opened, and God can open it. A servant can come, and God can move them. The mysteries of Christ can be declared, 
and people can receive it. How hopeful is this passage? If these kind of truths were not in the Bible, I don't know if I could stay in South Asia any longer. If we all, the time, the effort, the resources, down through the ages of the Christian church that has been spent on the place that now I call home, and how little there is of a gospel presence that is 2% of evangelical Christians in a land filled with over a billion people, it would make me want to pack up, come home. They say it takes, on the average, uh, takes seven, seven years for someone to convert from Hinduism. That's seven years of waiting, talking, praying for on those who now I call friends. The same with Muslims and many others. And I know you. You have many loved ones, neighbors, lost, closed door, blocked maybe even to the gospel. But My brothers and sisters, what does it say here? If we pray, God may open that door. So, let us pray. And as we pray, and God opens doors, then the gospel, the word, can come and will enter in. This is the last truth that we see in our text, is that open doors gives opportunities for Christ to be declared. We read in verse 3 and 4. Let's read it together, verse 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So once a door is opened by God, Paul desires two things to happen. First, what he says, to declare the mysteries of Christ. And second, that it may make it clear, which is how it ought to speak. So we can break this down into two words. First, the content of the gospel, and then the context. Content and context. And this is how the gospel has always gone out to the nations. Timeless truths of God in a timely, understandable way for the people. So, Paul wants, as well as I do, the mysteries of Christ to be declared. The mysteries of Christ. Mysteries of Christ. Why is it a mystery? Well, for one, it's because it's not able to be understood or not to be able to be conjured up. We cannot think of the gospel. It is something that God thinks of. It's a mystery to us because we can't think of of a gospel, a gospel of grace. God has to declare it, my friends. And the second reason is a mystery because God in his way of he has done is that he has passed over the Gentiles, but now has opened the door. We'll get to that in just a second. So The mysteries of Christ, my friends, is this, the sweet old gospel that you need to hear. This is the gospel that saves souls. Paul has already 
spoken of this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. If you have your Bibles, you can flip back a page, or it might be on the same page. You can read it with me. Colossians 1, 27. He says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The riches of this glory, this riches, are more numerous than the sands of the sea. Paul has already said this, that Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, that Christ, the ruler of all things, seen and unseen, that Jesus rules over all things, that Jesus holds all things together, that Jesus is the head of the church, that Christ, the God-man, now is indwelling the fullness of God, that Christ, who has reconciled all things, making peace by the cross, that Christ, who has from alienation and hostile mind and your evil dues, he's rescued from that, that Christ, who makes you holy and brainless, Christ, This Christ is in you, the hope of glory, if you are in the faith. So for for so long, Christ, God has passed over the Gentile nations, is leaving them in ignorance, but not any longer. Christ has opened a door for the Gentiles. We, I, I can know I'm a Gentile. I'm assuming you are too. I can know. You can know. They can know Christ and be qualified by his righteousness. We can be alive for the first time. Be in the light. Have a right mind. Walk in holiness. This is the message of which Paul wants the world to hear. This is the timeless truth that's once delivered to the saints This is the reason why we should pray for open doors, so that the gospel may be known and lives may be changed. This is the reason why we pray, again, for open doors on hearts and nations and people groups, that what? The gospel might change your identity, your purpose, your life, your status, that Christ may be all in all. The gospel, not only the gospel, he wants that to go out and be declared, but Paul also wants, as well as I do, the mysteries of Christ to be clearly communicated. This is why Paul asked that I would make the gospel clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul here is, again, considering not the content of the message, but how the the message is delivered. How do we speak of these riches of glory, the riches of the gospel to this particular people? Theologians call it contextualization. Uh, Let me explain that. Or actually let someone smarter than I am, Tim Keller, um, helpfully explain this. And he writes this. Quote, contextualization is giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not at all want to hear to the questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in the language and form they can comprehend and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel if, even if, they reject them. See, Paul wants the message to go out and when it 
and it, when it hits, it, it, it actually puts a, an impression on them, an, an indention. It, 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 the questions that someone is asking, it's, it's, at, it's answering those questions. Now, they might reject it or not, but they want to ask. Um, they, we want to be able to speak in that way. Living overseas in a very different culture for now for a year has taught me this a great deal. Let me give you an example. In preaching, sermons that I preach here in America, uh, which overall encouraged the body, when I preached them over there, because, you know, when I first came, um, you get there, you know, people ask you to preach. And uh, what would happen is that I'm still trying to figure out life. You know, I'm trying to figure out how to, you know, get to places and learn how to eat food and, you know, all this. So I'm trying to, I was like, okay, well, I'll use sermons from America. And I'll say, well, anyways, they, they begin to fall flat on listeners' ears. Then sermons, so then as I've been there uh, for a little time now, uh, what would happen is that uh, now I'm able to, kind of understand the culture a little more. So I would prepare sermons that had an eye towards the people of South Asia, my listeners. And though they found those messages encouraging and, and challenging. This is my experience with working with the pastors, uh, and particularly a pastor named Kempana. See, he said that uh, Kempana, I work with, uh, I go ever so often, maybe once a month or so, go there and preach at his church. And, uh, and again, in the beginning, I started just kind of use sermons that I've already done before, and you know, my American sermons. And he said, mm, they're okay. Uh, and it wasn't until I understood the people's longings that he said, now, oh, now I can preach. But why is this? Why is this? Well, both have the same truths of the gospel. Both understands that um, I'm expressing these truths, but here I'm, what's the difference? The truth is I'm expressing them differently, answering the big life questions. And this is the truth over here as well. So, for example, let's say a pastor comes up here and always, a pastor with a family, he always uses um, examples with his family. Everything's examples with his families and illustrations with his family. Well, over time, it might possibly push out adult singles because it doesn't really speak to them. So, so you have the gospel content, but what we are, what Paul wants is the gospel to be able to explain to the people there, and that's what he's praying for. In that, so in closing, in closing, there is. Uh, there shouldn't be any surprise about what the application is. It's very simple. Pray. Pray. We're actually going to have an opportunity to pray um, in a little bit for this thing. But uh, pray. Well, let me expound on it. First, we see here Paul um, wants you, He's asking prayer for what God will do, do through you. And then he's asking prayer for what God will do through me. And so, I want to encourage you this. So, brothers and sisters at Christ Community, can I encourage you that this 
is a time, a turning point, and you know this, in the life of the church, and it has been a great time. And a a small or a medium-sized church, a medium-sized church that has a wartime, kingdom-minded praying church, is a praying church with a big God, is more influential than a big church where prayer does not exist. Let me read that again. Uh, a small or medium-sized, wartime, kingdom-minded, praying church with a big God is more influential than a big church where prayer does not exist. You remember those revivals I shared in the beginning. Those were just a few people, 25, 30, 40 people. Most of them, small groups with big, a big God produces extraordinary results. So make sure as we move through this time, pray. Pray in your daily prayers when you get on your knees that you remember that you are at war. War with this world. War with your flesh. War with the devil. Pray for the kingdom to advance in this particular place in Kennesaw, Georgia. Pray for the gospel to go forward. Pray for the lost and dying to be saved. Pray for the glory of God will cover the earth like the waters of the sea. And I love that I can say along with Paul, continue in that because I know, I know you guys pray continuously 